One of the phrases, there's been many phrases that have worked their way into the popular lexicon that come from the Bible. One of them is, is the mountaintop experience, um, you know, which we kind of use in our, in our way to, to describe kind of a moment of personal transcendence, personal high, high point. You know, our mountaintop experiences are those things that comprise our bucket list, you know, that we hope to check off by the, you know, before we die. And, you know, one of the places that that phrase comes from, the mountaintop experience, is Exodus 19, which we looked at last week. And when you look at that chapter and then think about how we use that phrase in our sort of common parlance, you, you got to wonder if something's been lost in translation. Because on that mountain, in Exodus 19, there was, there was at least as much terror as there was transcendence going on, right? The people... All of Israel gathered around the mountain. They were instructed ahead of time, consecrate yourselves. They were instructed to set a boundary around the mountain so that nobody could touch the mountain uh, lest they die. Uh, and then the day came when God, in fact, came to the mountain and, and, and there were thunders, there were lightnings, there was deafening trumpet blasts, there was a thick cloud that descended over the mountain, there was smoke that went up from the mountain. Uh, the mountain shook and it left everyone terrified, certain that death was imminent, all because the true and living God was present on the mountain. All of those signs, all those physical things that were happening in that moment and at that time spoke to the importance of what was going on there in, 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 in that time and God coming to be his people, but coming to be with his people, to speak to them. But as we, as we move into Exodus 20, it becomes clear that God didn't come just to terrify. But he came, in fact, to bring truth, to speak, excuse me, directly to his people, to declare his laws to his people, to reveal his person, his presence, his commands. All of which culminate in this chapter 20 uh, with what we call the Ten Commandments or what the Bible refers to literally as the Ten Words. Now, the first thing that we need to understand about the Ten Commandments is the, the Ten Commandments are readily misunderstood. Um, the fact that they've played no small part in our contemporary culture wars, I think, kind of makes the point that these get used as a cudgel against the person that I'm going to get, right? I can remember um, many years ago, there was a controversy in which, you know, these, as these things go, somebody sued the local courthouse, uh, because there was an emblem of religious belief in the courthouse, that being the Ten Commandments. And, you know, predictably, the protesters showed up. They're upset about it. Uh, and this reporter went down to talk to this uh, protester um, uh, who was fuming at the thought of the Ten Commandments being taken down from the courthouse. I mean, she was upset about what this meant for our country, for our common morality, for our children, for our future. You know, and, and then the reporter you know, is kind of taking it all in, and then he just sort of says, well, what, what are the Ten Commandments? And she was like a deer in the headlights, scrambling with the most painful look on her face to come up with, you know, all ten. And I think she ended up coming up with like four or five. She was like, uh, don't kill, don't lie. Um. But here's the whole irony of that. And again, I'm, I'm speaking to the, 
how readily these things, this thing is misunderstood. The irony in the culture war thing is whether you're in the camp that's fighting to have them removed from the public square or furious at the thought that that would ever happen, both sides in that feud basically agree as to what the Ten Commandments represent. That they represent nothing more than a list of rules. That they represent essentially my morality. And the only difference is, is one side is saying, I don't want your, your moral rules hanging in the courthouse. And the other side is saying, I want them there. But what both religious rule keepers and anti-religious ragers kind of fail to see in the Ten Commandments is that these are fundamentally not a list of rules, but they are fundamentally a revelation of God that calls us to relationship with Him. That's what they are. And critical to understanding this is to pay attention to the fact that the Ten Commandments don't begin with a command. They begin instead with a reminder of the character of the God who's revealing them. A reminder of his character. Again, God is speaking directly to the people, and his first word to them is not, kneel before me, underlings. It is not, you know, tremble with fear lest you die. It is instead, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He doesn't begin with philosophy. He doesn't begin with theology. He doesn't begin with threats. He begins actually with history, with what he's done for them, with what he's done specifically in setting them free from slavery. Now, this is the first time that they hear directly from the mouth of God, but you know, it's also actually nothing new. We've heard this phrase before. We've heard, I am the Lord your God who's brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And not only that, we're going to hear it again many, many times. That phrase is repeated in some shape or form in the Bible more than 90 times. And, you know, that's kind of the point. You know, I'll just tell you a good rule of biblical interpretation and a good rule of um, probably just life is that when something's repeated a lot, that means at least two things. One, we're very prone to forget it. And two, it's really important. <laughs> right? I should have learned that better as a kid. Um, the, the, this thing is of, ma the, the thing that is of massive importance that we're prone to forget is the very thing that Israel has already forgotten in the short time since their liberation. And that is that Yahweh is the Lord and that Yahweh has set them free by grace. And what that means in this introduction, and again, why this is not just my moral list of rules, is that the law is in fact, in fact grounded not in rule keeping for rule keeping's sake, but it is grounded in relationship. Relationship with the living God. And we're so very prone to forgetting that. We're so prone to imagine and think that God's law is the mechanism whereby we prove that we are a good person, whereby we procure his favor, whereby we demonstrate that we're not as, you know, that we're just a little bit better than the person who wants to take the Ten Commandments down from the courthouse. But in fact, we find out that it's not that mechanism to get God's favor, but it is that which has sprung from God's favor. 
There's a place in the Bible, I think, that, that illustrates this idea of the law being anchored in relationship with, with the Lord and giver of life beautifully, I think. It's in Leviticus 19. And, you know, if you ever do one of these Bible reading plans and you come up on Leviticus 19, you know, you're kind of like, what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, it's, it's one of those chapters that's kind of hard to make heads or tails of, um, you know, and as these things go, I think there's even some, you know, Bible translators and Bible editors who, you know, they put the little headings in there. And, and some of them, I think, just say something like various laws, you know, it's like about as much as they can come up with. Like, it, it just reads like a random list of laws. They're in no particular order. They range in everything from domestic laws to social laws, agricultural, horticultural, civic, sexual. It, 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 it's like someone took, you know, a bunch of laws and threw them up in the air and then they landed on the page and that's Leviticus 19. But then you step back and you realize that in, that in fact there is a kind of order to it. And here's what I think the order is. That's like life. It's, it's a jumble. It's in no particular order. We're always dealing with work, one minute and family the next, and then finances and retirement, and oh, I've got the church thing, and there's the deal with the city, and my health, and my dog. In no particular order. Jumbled and poured out all over the pages of my day and my week and my life, right? That's life. And the thread that runs through the drumbeat of Leviticus 19 that holds it all together, that makes sense of life, is this very affirmation that precedes the commands, I am the Lord your God. It is repeated in that chapter 16 times. Law about civic relations, remember, I'm the Lord your God. Law about sexual relations, I'm the Lord your God. Law about domestic arrangements. I am the Lord your God. Oh, agriculture, I am the Lord your God. It is to say that what makes sense of life and sustains life, the poured out jumble that is my life and yours probably too, isn't me. That's not what keeps it together. It's not my competence. It's not my mastery over time management. It is not me attaining perfect work-life balance. It's not my rule keeping. It's not aligning my chi. It's not anything in me. It is to say that at the center of life, at every turn, what keeps my life together is not me, but instead the daily, ongoing, constant remembering and relying on this singular, profound, penetrating pronouncement I am the Lord your God. The implication being, you're not your Lord and God. <laughs> All of that comes before even one word of law has been uttered so that we would know and never, ever forget, as one writer put it, the grace that saves always precedes the law that demands. The grace that saves always precedes the law that demands. Now, God is speaking, and, it, and it's good to remember not only that he's speaking, but to whom he is speaking. He is speaking to a bunch of people who have recently been brought out of slavery, not to bring them back into a whole new kind of slavery, but instead to actually establish them in a whole new life. A life rooted in life-giving, dependent relationship on the Lord who is determined that his people have freedom. And it's with that in mind, he gives this first commandment. This commandment, you shall have 
I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And the first thing to say about the first commandment is there is a reason it is first. Um, we just saw last week in chapter 19 what happened when Moses came down from the mountain, setting before the people uh, all that the Lord had commanded them to do. And do you remember their response? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, I think that's one of the most chilling passages in the entire Bible. Um, because they are relating again to the law as a list of rules. Ten rules, no problem. Thank you for the instructions. We'll take it from here. Rule keeping, right? Not relationship. It is as if they're saying, we have faith in our faith. We'll believe really, really hard. But then you come to this first commandment and you actually have to ask the question, is this a commandment? What is this? How do I do this? How do I do, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me? That's kind of the point. You see, we're immediately confronted with the fact that this command is first, not, not because it's more important than the other nine, but because it's foundational to the other nine. To, to be sure, this is a command, and we're going to look in a minute about what it looks like to actually obey the command, but at the same time, it stubbornly refuses to land on your to-do list. It stubbornly refuses to be the box that you and I will check or the task for you, to, for you and me to complete. You cannot handle it that way. In fact, this command is given to kind of handle you and handle me. I can remember one time I was, you know, doing sermon prep back in the day, and, and you know, my, my wife, Kit, said, you know, how's the sermon prep going? I got, you know, I said, well, I'm, I'm really wrestling with it. And she said, you know, maybe it's wrestling with you. And that kind of reminds me of the first commandment. Yeah, yeah, wrestle with it, but guess what? It's going to wrestle with you. And that's the point. This is a command that will wrestle with us. It is far more penetrating, far more searching than some task, you know, to pull off and say, I've done it. And that's because it is fundamentally not a rule to follow, but it is fundamentally a call to faith. It's a call to faith in the one true living holy God into a faithful relationship with him. That's why it's foundational to everything that follows because it asserts that there is only one God. There is a sovereign creator who made everything, who sustains the, the world by the word of his power and therefore is in possession and has full right over all of his creation. And, and the implications of that for how we are to live cannot be overstated because that means that there is actually such a thing as objective truth and a moral code that derives from it. It means that human beings are not in a position to define truth for themselves. It means that there is an everlasting and moral, universal moral framework and with it come moral obligations that don't rest, thank God, on my feelings, my experiences, my opinions, what culture I happen to come from, what feels right to me in any given moment, what Oprah says, but instead that truth and righteousness and justice are grounded in the living God who is truth and is righteousness and is just eternally and perfectly. And he has revealed himself to his creatures that we might live 
in faithful relationship with him and with one another. Now look, I realize when it comes to conversations about right and wrong to the degree that they happen, uh, God rarely enters the conversation. <laughs> you know, we, we tend to think, I think, in this culture that things like respecting people, agreeing to disagree, honoring human rights, the idea that children matter, that, you know, not killing or lying or stealing are kind of instinctive stuff, that we just know that. We just assume we know right from wrong because we're, we're born with that internal sense, instinctively. But, you know, I want to ask the question, is, it, is that actually true? Do we really arrive at morality naturally? Or could it be that we just happen to live in a time and a place that has been so deeply shaped by a Judeo-Christian biblical ethic that, that we're something like fish swimming around not knowing we're wet, sort of unaware of the influence on it, even as we might rail against that very influence? In 2016, a man named Tom Holland published an article in the New Statesman. Tom Holland is a, is a scholar of ancient history in the UK. And the title of this article was, is called, Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. And he admits that he had been shaped by the conventional view of his field, ancient history, which basically took, takes the view very commonly that um, with the ascendancy of Christianity in the West came a... Uh, a period of intolerance, of superstition, of oppression. You know, it, it was that thing that swept away all the, more, all the noble values that, that came from the Greeks and the Romans. But in the article, he says this, and I'm going to quote it at length because I think it's worth it. Um, this is, again, a scholar of ancient history. He says, the longer I spent immersed in the study of classical antiqu antiquity, the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. The values of the Spartan leader Leonidas, for example, whose people had practiced a peculiarly murderous form of eugenics and trained their, their young in murderousness were nothing I recognized as my own. Nor were those of Caesar, who was reported to have killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. It was not the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that the poor or the weak have any intrinsic value. He goes on to conclude that his sense of morality doesn't, didn't just come from anywhere, but from Christianity. And he, he concludes his article, he continues saying this, familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment. Not to suffer it themselves. Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once known collectively as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept, he says, I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. 
turns out that things like handicap ramps, <laughs> braille on ATMs, infant ICUs, foster care, adoption, and a million other things aren't there just because we are these noble people who are drawing out our innate noble nature. They exist because God has revealed himself, because this is his nature. He's revealed himself to a people who have put them, their faith in him and not themselves and have sought to live in relationship with him and all the implications that that brings to bear as his image bearers. As one writer put it really well, the first commandment not only gives us our first obligation as human beings, it lays the groundwork for every other moral obligation. And that's why Martin Luther says, you never break any command until you break this one first. Because defying any part of God's law always involves first hitting the tripwire of breaking this law, disregarding that there is one true and living God and I am not he. That he has revealed truth to us, that he has authority over me, that he has a claim upon us, and that he calls us to a beautiful obedience to him out of gratitude for setting us free from the house of slavery. You know, and all that prompts the question I kind of hinted at earlier, what does it look like to actually obey this law? Again, it's a commandment. Um, we've spent most of our time looking really at the first part of it where, where God proclaims, I am the Lord your God. But, but now I think in order to, to understand what it looks like to obey the command, let's, let's turn our attention to verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, now, this is not to say that there are other gods, it, but it is to say that we're the kind of people who live as if there are, right? And, and much has been said already about how the commandments are framed in terms of relationship, but now we're beginning to get a sense of the kind of relationship God calls his people to. Um, the language here in verse 3 is kind of curious. We have translated no other gods before me, but, but the literal Hebrew is something like no gods in front of my face. And John Calvin, in interpreting this passage, said, you know what's going on here? This is something of the language of a, of a husband or a wife saying, don't bring other lovers into this relationship. Don't brazenly do that. We're in a covenant relationship. Don't, don't come waltzing in here. Like, so imagine, you know, a husband comes home from work and opens the door and, you know, says, boy, it's good to be home and mm, it smells so good, whatever you got going on the stove. Uh, thanks for working on dinner. Oh, and uh, who's this? This is Sheila. Um, she's become very special to me. Uh, just like you're really special to me. Anyway, we really love each other, just like you and I love each other. And, and isn't it so great that there's so much love to go around? So I just wanted to introduce you. Um, I wanted to let you know, give you a little heads up that I'm going to be splitting my time between here and Sheila's place. And, and honey, I just want to tell you, you are going to love her. You guys have so much in common. You both just mean the world to me. You know, how will a wife respond to that? You know, it will not be, that's great, honey, the more the merrier. After a few plates go flying across the kitchen, she's probably, best case scenario, going to say it is me or her. And, and, and the reason is, is because of the nature of the marital covenant itself. 
you know, and because of the nature of that relationship, none of us would consider that wife to be overly exclusive, unfair, or demanding. In fact, we would think it's bizarre if the dishes didn't go flying, if she didn't say me or her. Because a covenantal marital sickness and in health, forsaking all others till death do we, depart, till death do we part relationship, demands exclusivity. So, so that bringing other loves can't just be thought of as, you know, sort of diminishing the love. It, it has to be thought of as the destruction of it. That's what it means when God says, no other gods before my face. And it's not because he's unfair. It's not because he's overly exclusive. It's not because he is, you know, overly demanding. It is, in fact, for the very opposite reason, because his desire is for a beautiful, life-giving, lifelong relationship of devotion and joy, mutually enjoyed. Him loving us supremely, us loving him supremely with all our heart, our mind, soul, and strength, forsaking all others in sickness and in health, in this life and in the life to come. Now, the Bible's term for bringing other lovers before the face of God is one we've used here fairly often. It's just idolatry. Um, you know, and while few of us, you know, are going to march into the kitchen with Sheila um, or, you know, march into a temple and place a dead animal before a statue, you know, this is what we readily do. Uh, we latch on to other loves. And the reason we do that is we love our idols. We're attracted to them. I had, I had a professor in seminary, an Old Testament professor by the name of Doug Stewart, and he... Um, he came up with a list to explain what is the attraction of idolatry? Why is Israel always running back to it? It's one thing to say we do it. It's another thing to say it's got a pull. It has an attraction for us. And so he gives all these reasons. Um, you know, he begins by saying you know, that idolatry came with guarantees. Say the right words, kill the right animals, light the right candle, and the gods show up. He also said, you know, it's selfish. Put the coin in the slot say the right prayer, do the right incantation, um, and the blessing will fall from the divine vending machine. He also said it's easy. The gods don't particularly care about your heart and your mind and your soul or your moral framework. Just show up, go through the motions, and you're done. And along the same lines, he said it was convenient. There was, there was a Idolatry worked on the franchise system. There were places and outlets everywhere where you could do these rituals and incantations on your timeline, according to your convenience, according to how you wanted to do it. But Yahweh, on the other hand, commanded worship at the time and the place of his choosing. He also made the point that idolatry was normal. Everybody's doing it. Sure, there's lots of God, but religion worked in the same way among them all. And who wants to stand out like a weirdo Israelite? He also said it was logical. It made sense that, you know, if you need rain, you go to the rain god. If you need a baby, you go to the fertility god. He also made the point that it was sensual, that it was pleasing to the senses, that it came with theater, with smells and beauty and craftsmanship and a little carved statue with a face that I can look into and stare into the eyes. He made the point that it was indulgent, that in a culture and at a time where meat and wine were kind of luxuries, that was part of the worship. And finally, he said it was erotic. That people 
across the board thought that good, good things came from when the gods were intimate with each other. If Baal and Asherah could only get a little romantic evening together, then we, maybe we'll get some good rain and with it a good crop. And the way to get that going was for worshipers to have, have uh, relations with temple prostitutes. And so you can see the attraction. And, and I don't know about you, but can we relate to the attraction of worship with a warranty that guarantees me things, that's centered on my felt needs, that's easy, that's convenient, that doesn't make you stand out in the culture, that's pleasing to my senses, that indulges my carnal appetites. You know, sign me up. But powerful as the attraction may be, we know something else about it. And many of us have, have sort of done this. We've chased after sex and ease and convenience, all with the hope that it will deliver. And we, we've often find, we ultimately find, we come up empty. It's bitter. Back in 2013, I read an interview with Seth MacFarlane, uh, the creator of Family Guy, um, that illustrates this emptiness. Now, Seth MacFarlane not only created that one TV show, he's a major force in entertainment. He's created several successful TV shows and films and music. He's good looking. He's a talented singer and musician himself. And he has a net worth well north of $300 million. And he was doing kind of this puff interview you know, where the um, interviewer is asking him about all his success and his influence and his fame and his relationships with supermodels and asks, you know, how are you, how are you enjoying all this? And he says this. He says, well, I wish I was better at taking in how great my life is. But that's surprisingly elusive. I tend to be very hard on myself and insecure about failing no matter what happens. He is describing the bitterness of pursuing the false gods, which will always take more than they'll ever give. Surprisingly elusive. You chase and you chase, you grab a hold only to see satisfaction slip your grasp, only to have it come back on you in insecurity and in fear of failure and emptiness. So that now, no matter how great a life, you can have a $300 million supermodel riddled life that we may make for ourselves, we find out that we were not made to center life on ourselves. But we're made for one centered around the God who made us, for whom we were made. The first commandment actually illustrates a different kind of pursuit altogether. It's actually fundamentally not one that we set out on, but one in which we are told, for starters, how we've been pursued. How we've been grasped. How satisfaction isn't something for us to earn, but how satisfaction is on offer. We started off this morning being reminded of how God came to the mountain, how he made his presence known and his word known and his will known. And millennia later, he came back to a mountain. He again spoke. He again made his presence known, his word known, his will known. It again was witnessed, this time not by a whole nation, but by three disciples who, who bore witness to the terrible, glorious cloud of God's presence that once again descended on that mountain. And, 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 and they saw there Moses, the, the giver of the law, and along with Moses, Elijah, 
who represents the prophets who gave God's word to God's people and they saw another person. They saw Jesus. And this time, instead of revealing 10 commandments, which would come to be inscribed on tablets of stone, God spoke one commandment. One commandment that he inscribes on the, on the, on the tables of our hearts. A commandment summarizing the entirety of what Moses and Elijah represented in the law and the prophets and the commandment is just this. Speaking of Jesus, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. You know, we tend to think of the law as rules to obey, but Jesus saw the law as something to fulfill. That smoking, thundering, quaking mountain of law that would kill you and me if we even touched it, he took on. He fulfilled it by keeping it all down to the last dotted I, down to the last cross T, so that rule breakers like you and me and religiously self-righteous people like you and me might attain the life-giving relationship with him by grace, being freed to enjoy and pursue God's good will. Not because we're grinding it out, but because we're grateful. We grow in grateful dependence on the one true and living God who's liberated us from the bondage of sin, who set us free from the house of slavery. Do you want to know God? Do you want to be freed from the tyranny of always making up your own rules? of always trying to justify yourself, of always trying to kind of quell the guilty conscience, of trying desperately in some way to handle the sin and the shortcomings? Do you want to quit playing those games of pursuing a, 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 that, have, that have brought you nothing but anxiety at best and a hardened conscience at worst? Do you want to know the beauty, the beauty of pursuing a life in relationship with the God who made you, who's pursuing you as a bridegroom, does a bride, who calls you to a life of truth and of honor and a beautiful obedience to him and to, to love for neighbor, then look to Jesus. Jesus says you can't know God apart from him because he is God's beloved son, look to him, listen to him, receive the fullness of the first command from the one who is the end of the law, who, who, to whom the law points, in whom the law finds its fullness because he alone is the, is, is, is the faithful lover of God that we could only fail to be. He is the way to God. He is the truth of God. He is the fullness of life in God. And when we put our trust in him, we come into possession of all of it. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, <clears throat> thank you for your word. Uh, indeed, it is uh, searching and penetrating. Um, and yet, it's so simple. Thank you, Lord, that you have not, as you could have, come and demanded of us um, a perfect obedience. Lord, that would have been the end. That would have been as treacherous as touching the mountain, imagining that we can make a way into a life-giving, loving, covenantal relationship with you on our own, we simply can't. So you have given us Jesus. You have said, where you have failed, I will fulfill. Where you have been faithless, I will be faithful. Where 
sin should fall upon you, I will allow it to crash upon me and crush me. And where death should have come for you, death will come to me, but life will come from it. So Lord, we, like the people gathered in front of the mountain, look to you. Uh, We look to you to um, not only uh, deliver the law, but to free us from its tyranny by looking to Jesus. We put our faith in him. Thank you for this table uh, where we come uh, to be astonishingly fed by you, sustained by you. What better picture of your covenantal faithful love than this table? which reminds us week in and week out that our life indeed is in you and that you sustain us even as we need food and drink to live. Even for a short while, you give us this food and this drink, what Jesus calls true food, true drink, to sustain us not only in this life, but in the life to come. So we take it gladly. Lord, we take it by faith, putting our trust in you, turning from our idols, and also recognizing we gotta be back here next week because you are our life. So help us as we come. Thank you for your grace. We feed upon it gladly. In Jesus' name, amen.